0: And we welcome you to the Monday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. As many of you know, we recently had to bid a fond and sad farewell to someone who had been a frequent and always fascinating morning show guest over the years, a faculty colleague of mine from Carthage College, Dr. Yuri Maltsev, professor of economics, a part of the faculty there since 1991. Dr. Maltsev passed away on January 25th, at the age of 72 over the last several decades I had the great pleasure of welcoming Professor Maltseff onto the morning show more than a dozen times and during the month of February we're going to be replaying some of those conversations this past weekend I replayed my very first morning show conversation with Professor Maltseff which occurred in 2001 not long after 9-11 I've chosen today to replay an interview which I recorded with Professor Maltseff back in 2013, not long after the Boston Marathon bombing that occurred on April 15th of that year. One of the reasons I chose this particular interview to rebroadcast is because there is a point early on in the interview in which Professor Maltseff sketches in brief his interesting life story, where he came from originally, the work that he did in Russia, and what ultimately took him here to the United States. Otherwise, it's a somewhat wide-ranging conversation, although most of the topics that uh, we talk about uh, have something to do with Russia, and in particular with the leadership style of Vladimir Putin. It's a very interesting conversation, I think, and it makes me grateful for all of the opportunities that I had to speak with Professor Maltsev on this program. Please enjoy. And we welcome you to the Wednesday morning show on WGTDHD, your gateway to public radio. I'm Gregory Berg. I am delighted to welcome back into our studios Dr. Yuri Maltsev, professor of economics at Carthage College and part of Carthage's uh, Claussen Center. And, um, Professor Maltseff has joined us before, and uh, it is always a, a, an interesting time. Most recently, Professor Maltsev joined us uh, to talk about the continent of Africa, uh, which is a part of the world he knows a great deal about, and uh, recently he took uh, a, a, a number of, of Carthage students to Africa, uh, an occurrence which happens quite, quite regularly. But uh, because uh, Yuri Maltseff... Uh, comes originally from in and around Russia, uh, that is a part of the world that he knows intimately well. In fact, Professor Maltsev, first of all, we welcome you back to the morning show. Oh, uh, maybe pull that up just a little closer to you. Uh, for the sake of our listeners who maybe haven't yet kind of heard your story, um, remind them of, of 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 exactly where you come from the work that you did uh, for the government, for Mr. Gorbachev, for instance, and then w- the events which ultimately took you here to the United States and ultimately to Carthage.
1: Oh, excellent. Thank you. <clears throat> I was born in Kazan, which is capital of Tatar Republic. Uh, not many people know that not only Soviet Union was a multinational state, but Russia itself it has 20 mm. different uh, different uh, autonomies, and Tatarstan is one of them. Uh, Tatarstan was founded by Tatars and Mongols who came in the 12th century, and uh, people like Genghis Khan and the likes, they founded the city Kazan. Uh, And I was born and lived there until I was 16, and then my family moved to Moscow. And uh, so it was good for me that I uh, became a student in Moscow State University, which is the best uh, university in the USSR. Um, then, after I graduated university, I worked for Department of Labor of the USSR for a while, as a, and got my uh, doctorate degree in uh, labor economics. Uh, and then, uh, and then I was uh, invited to join the economic reforms. Uh, crowd uh, when Mr. Gorbachev uh, was elected in 1985 uh, as the General Secretary of the Communist Party of Soviet Union. Well, he was elected by 11 people, Politburo members, not by the population. But, <laughs> but at that time, we had a lot of hopes uh, of change, and and he was the youngest and the most promising leaders that we've had. And, and so I joined this uh, economic reforms team, and I worked on um, – my field was civil service reform. Uh, in the Soviet Union, there was no civil service. It was uncivil civil disservice, which was called nomenklatura, and uh, uh, and uh, the bureaucracy in Soviet Union was just atrocious. Um, so I worked there, and then I was sent uh, on a lecturing tour to Finland uh, instead of my instead of my boss, who, who Mr. Gorbachev uh, asked to stay in the. Soviet Union. He was um, uh, first uh, deputy prime minister of the USSR. So in the, in the shoes of, of the uh, deputy prime minister, I went to, uh, of the evil empire, I went to Finland on my lecturing tour. And <coughs> completely in a completely unpredictable way, uh, because nobody could defect from Finland, Finns at that time would just send you back and you would get Twelve years of hard labor in Siberia. Yikes! And I right, and I was not soliciting this kind of career change at that time, and <laughs> and so I um, um, uh, just by some sheer chance I ended up in um, in Sweden uh, the same week, and then uh, and then in uh, the Kennedy Airport in New York. So I missed my train going back to the S- Soviet Union, and <clears throat> since nineteen eighty nine I. I uh, live in the United States I, uh, to find myself actually working for the second largest bureaucracy of this planet <laughs> for the federal government in Washington. I worked at a congressional think tank in Washington, and um, between us, uh, uh, as uh, most congressional think tanks, we didn't think much there. <laughs> uh, <so> I, <laughs> I, what I did you do? <laughs> I was kind of thinking. Um, yeah, it was more or less like a candy store. with uh, kind of conferences and with no discussions. Uh, I was uh, working with some congressmen and senators, uh, briefing them on what's happening, and, uh, <clears throat> and then I decided to do something positive with my life and looked for a job and found a job at Carthage College, and, and Carthage already since 1991, it's my, it's my longest, uh, longest um, uh, uh, work experience. Uh, uh, speaking about Gorbachev reforms, I, I wasn't the advisor, I was an advisor. Um, uh, so I wouldn't take the blame that <laughs> eleven time zones went down the drain. <laughs>
0: but,
1: uh, but I also worked with um, with uh, Mr. Yeltsin. I had a, uh, it was a very dubious pleasure to work with Mr. Yeltsin um, when he was first secretary of the Moscow City Party Committee. Uh, so I, um, <coughs> Russia, I would say that that it's definitely a very beautiful place. Um, And, uh, however, we Russians, we usually say that it's a beautiful place to be from.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Not a beautiful place to be? (laughs) (laughs) That's
1: right. Yeah, it's just to be from, yes. Mm. And I am, right now, I am more Wisconsinite than Russian. Mm. I just have my accent, uh, 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 Russian accent. That's kind of my, my best memory of of the country I
0: left right uh, one of there's many things I want, want to talk to uh, with you about one of them um, is the results of a Gallup poll and uh, evidently the, the folks who do the Gallup poll for the last eight years have uh, have conducted one poll in which the the question posed uh, to people is do you approve or disapprove of the job performance of the leadership of such and such a country mm-hmm. and and that and that that question then is is posed regarding the leadership of quite a number of different countries and and if I understand correctly for now, the eighth year in a row, mm-hmm. the lowest ranking country in that poll mm-hmm. is Russia mm-hmm. that is the outside world by and large, at least according to this Gallup poll, has an exceedingly low opinion mm-hmm. of the leadership of Russia, and of course presumably uh, President Putin, um, are you surprised that his public standing, in terms of the rest of the world looking looking in, is as low as that?
1: Well, I, if uh, um, I, I think it. it could be even lower. <laughs> <That's>, uh,
0: <laughs> if, if it were possible. Huh?
1: <laughs> uh, if it would be possible, you're right. Yeah. Um, in Russia, however, his standing is very high in this in public opinion polls. He has approval rating right now 87 mm. uh, percent. But I do not believe or trust this kind of uh, – because I remember uh, uh, Mr. Brezhnev, uh, who had this ailing dictator in the 1970s, uh, he used to say public opinion polls not about what people think, but about what you should think.
0: Mm. And so
1: that's the, the the kind of public opinion polls in, in Russia are as trustworthy as, as they are in North Korea. Mm. With his great approval, with the Crimea referendum of 99 percent and things like that. He, Mr. Putin, he came from a very interesting background. His grandfather was a personal cook of Stalin. So he, uh, his father was a KGB officer, and so mm-hmm. he he's kind of from a dynasty of this uh, communist, uh, communist believers, true believers, and Stalinists. Uh, and for me, as an ethnic Russian, it was definitely almost a tragedy to see him being elected in the year two thousand as a uh, president of Russia, seventy-two uh, percent of popular vote. Uh, <clears throat> after all, that's what happened. I do not travel much to Russia because my last article published in Russia, in Russian, uh, had a self-descriptive title, uh, Meat Voted for a Meat Grinder, about Mr. Putin. Mm. Because his institution, he is a KGB officer. He recently said that if you are once KGB, because somebody called him ex-KGB officer. He said there's no such thing as ex-KGB. If you are in KGB, you are KGB all your life. You are Czechist, as in Russian, they would say. Mm. And Mr. Putin, uh, unreformed uh, KGB officer, came from the background of the most murderous institution in the world. KGB murdered more people than any other institution uh, in the history of human race. Uh, the estimates are from 43 to 61 million people. And um, and to be proud of that, it kind of takes a lot of guts. And, and uh, Mr. Putin... <coughs> uh, uh, he toasts to Stalin. He wants to to reconstruct the Soviet Union. Uh, you, you wouldn't believe it. I mean, can you imagine in Germany if SS or Gestapo officer would be uh, would be elected, even a dog catcher in a remote village? <laughs> that would be a national tragedy.
0: <laughs> right. Exactly. In
1: Russia, it looks like people, I mean, the, the, the the masses of people, made such a poor judgment. Uh, and why poor judgment? Because after you murder so many people. Then fear is in the genes of people. The most mm. awful outcome of Soviet socialism was corruption of, of kind of, of the national, national identity, of national mind, of, of, public, uh, of public decency, I would say. Uh, today, uh, you know that today they, uh, in, in Boston, they are deciding the fate of uh, Mr. Tsarnaev, uh, a Boston marathon terrorist uh, from Chechnya. And uh, that brings us to what Russians did to Chechnya and how, because it's one of the ticking bombs uh, which were laid down by the USSR, by the Soviet regime. Uh, the destabilization of Chechnya. Of Afghanistan. I truly believe that we wouldn't experience 9-11. It'll be no Soviet intervention in Afghanistan in 1970s and 1980s. Mm, but
0: uh, that I mean, that laid the groundwork for some yes, of that. Unrest. They
1: completely destabilized that country. They destroyed it. Uh, they made about two million Afghan children orphans. These orphans later were handpicked by Mr. Bin Laden, he organized madrasa, special schools where they were indoctrinated and um, the students of the school they called themselves Talibs students. Uh, and so Taliban came uh, just out of there. And mm-hmm. definitely the students who owed uh, bin Laden so much, they they uh, hosted him, they, they provided all logistical support for his activities in Afghanistan, and that's how intervention to Afghanistan happened already in October uh, 2001. Mm-hmm. And we are still stuck in that place. Uh, with Chechnya, uh, Chechnya was uh, uh, first uh, occupied by Russians in 1817. Uh, uh, The uh, Emperor uh, Alexander II and then succeeded by Nicholas I, who really hated Chechens. He called them, uh, it's not a nation, it's a profession. And Mm. uh, and he sent a lot of Russian troops to Chechnya to subdue them. Chechens were Muslims. They were trying to, Sunni Muslims. Uh, Russians were trying to baptize them in the Russian Orthodox faith. uh, So that led to ongoing conflict for the last 150 years. Uh, Leo Tolstoy, great Russian writer, uh, he was a captain in the Imperial Army. was sent to Chechnya in 1830. He um, uh, he was a very promising military officer. Uh, everybody thought he will be he will be a general when he would reach the age of thirty. Uh, he went to Chechnya, uh, stayed there for half a year. After that, quit the army, quit eating animal flesh, uh, became a vegetarian. Uh, quit drinking and smoking, uh, became kind of a predecessor of Mahatma Gandhi in Russia. Hmm. Uh, And he called Russian Imperial Army a swarm of blood-sucking insects. Mm. And after that, he became extremely anti-government, kind of dissident, uh, uh, spoke very uh, harshly about Russian Orthodox Church, which was which was uh, blessing these atrocities in Chechnya uh, and uh, 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 became an enemy of the state for the Tsars. Uh, so that's... Uh, and, then, and then what happened? Then when Soviet Union fell apart, then Chechnya declared its independence from Soviet Union like everybody else did. However, because there was some oil in Chechnya, and most of Chechnya was not so-called Union Republic, but Autonomous Republic, the Russian Federation declared that it's illegal for Chechens to secede. And Chechens were fighting for the, for the independence fiercely from 1991 to, to today. Mm. In 1995, there was the first Chechen war. Uh, uh, Russians killed the, um, the uh, president, first president of Chechnya, uh, Dzhokhar Dudaev. Uh, who was a national hero in Chechnya. He was also a general of the Soviet Air Force before Chechnya um, um, uh, seceded from Soviet Union. Uh, and after that was a huge backlash. And we, unfortunately, our administration, Washington, supported Yeltsin government in subduing Chechnya. So we became enemies of Chechen people.
0: Can you explain why the U.S. would have done that? What, what would our motivation have been? just to just to remain on friendly terms with Yeltsin
1: uh, that's right i think that that uh, the special relations with soviet union uh, during the cold war definitely soviet union was our enemy number one and definitely nobody wanted any nuclear war or, or, or kind of annihilation of the whole human race so that's why we had special relations even with the soviet union soviet union would would uh, would be uh, doing a lot of things that any other country could not do uh, at least on our watch. Um, and so that's for example, you mentioned that my trips to Africa and whatnot I was uh, 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 last January was uh, part of the uh, team uh, which we were making a movie about Soviet infiltration to South Africa uh, and how the KGB and, and the likes how uh, how they were, um, how instrumental they were uh, in destroying of whole, the whole African continent. And, uh, and they did the same thing almost everywhere else. And, uh, and Afghanistan is, again, a very good example. But with Chechnya, what, uh, what happened? Uh, because Chechnya thought, that I was in Chechnya just before I defected. And at that time in Chechnya, Americans were the most welcome people. Everybody in Chechnya thought that Soviet Union will fall apart, uh, that we will become a part of the bigger world. People mm-hmm. were not very religious because Soviets suppressed, uh, uh, fiercely suppressed every religion, including Judaism, including Islam and and, and Christianity. And, and so people were pretty secular and, and very open to the West. Uh, then, because they think we betrayed them because Bill Clinton wanted to have good relations to with Russia even uh, quite recently President Obama uh, if you remember that Secretary Clinton uh, she came up with this big button uh, reset Russian relations with uh, mm. with the United States that after relations became pretty sour under President Bush uh, then the, the presidency of Obama they decided to do that uh, and it failed and it failed for what reason because we should understand that we, are needed by Mr Putin as an enemy, not as a friend, not as a well, as a partner, but as an enemy. Because his regime is a criminal regime. They need an external enemy to justify their whole existence. And mm-hmm. so that's why they yeah, they're they so fierce and whatever to the Chechen people. And then what happened? Then we kind of I would say, we're not supporting Chechen. Chechens believe that that we provided Russians with this information about the the location where Mr. Dudayev was, and uh, because the, we have the satellites and abilities to do that. So when Russian Russians killed him, uh, they thought that we are in, in, uh, complicit in this in this mm. type of. Murder. So
0: in the murder of the Chechen leader, their mm-hmm. first leader, yes. they, they they suspect that the United States somehow played a part in making that possible. Yeah,
1: providing Russians with intelligence. Of mm. Because he was located, he was on the cell phone. Russians, they, they thought, do not have a technology to locate uh, their cell phones, only landlines. And and so that was just this is, this is irrelevant. I mean, whether it happened really or not. but This the problem, is their belief. Yeah, the problem is that they really, truly believe. Every church believes
0: that. Mm. Now, is that the line that we can draw then between this unrest in Chechnya, Chechnya's unhappiness with us, and then what happened in Boston? I mean, is that, is that the reason why the Tsar Nata brothers wanted to do something so terrible in Boston, or, or, do, or, or is that story more complex than that?
1: Absolutely. Uh, the story is a little bit more complex because no, no simple answers in, in what's happening in that part of the world. And what is complex is that then we changed our policy uh, towards Russia. We became, we became more critical of what Russians are doing in Chechnya. And we had some kind of like a remorse or hangover of the 1990s. And we decided to have a special refugee program for Chechens run by the U.S. State Department. So we brought Tsarnaevs here at the taxpayer's expense, provided them with everything, with free housing, food stamps, uh, free education in the University of Massachusetts system, uh, uh, situated them, provided them with everything possible and impossible. The same program we have, for example, for Somalis, and hmm. uh, look what happened what, a couple of days ago in Minneapolis. Uh, six, uh, uh, six refugees of Somali descent uh, were arrested and right now indicted uh, because they were supporting ISIS and were, uh, were planning to travel there and, 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 and kill 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 people. So I would say that this, this program of resettling people that we already had upset a lot, mm. it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense because what we are doing, we are, we are subsidizing, subsidizing uh, uh, terrorism, inside our country. Moreover, if you will look at Tsarnaev, the, the mayhem that they created in Boston when three wonderful people were murdered, 260 were made maimed, um, many of them for life. Uh, I mean, whom they should thank? US, mm. U.S. State Department? Why they were bringing these people who hate us, providing with, with everything, maybe trying to buy them with all these nice goodies, but they didn't. Mm. Look, there's two young people uh, the uh, completely, I would say, indoctrinated, uh, uh, and uh, the more you help them, the more they would hate you. Mm. Uh, so these are the problems I think that we face, and I know that it's a very kind of bitter pill for us. But I think we should reassess these resettlement programs, uh, at least, uh, at least, uh, uh, um, uh, in the po- from the point of view that our government should protect us first, <laughs> not people overseas. Yeah.
0: For those of you just joining us, we're speaking with uh, Dr. Yuri Maltsev, who is a professor of economics uh, at Carthage College and uh, part of the Claussen uh, uh, the Center. Some interesting headlines have uh, come out of Russia recently that, of course, we want to take some time to talk about. One of them that I, I would really like you to sketch for our listeners who, uh, although I think many of them kind of followed the story, but it's an, it's an intriguing example of the way Mr. Putin leads Russia, was this uh, recent media event, which uh, was heavily orchestrated and which uh, my understanding is... Essentially, kind of an annual event. Um, f- for anyone who did not follow that closely, uh, what are we talking about? What are the what are the kinds of things that are done as part of these? Uh, heavily orchestrated media events. What what is their purpose and uh, and how effective are they?
1: Well, interestingly enough, that this tradition was set up by Mr. Gorbachev. It was something called Glasnost. Glasnost. I mean, openness. Hmm. Um, Mr. Putin, who right now doesn't have anything to do with openness or <laughs> freedom of speech, but he is kind of following this tradition in a sense to to have uh, because he monopolized all mass media, so it 's all his, uh, but he still once a year he has this call in program, then everybody can call in and ask him a question or or make their their point of view Well, uh, all of these questions and everything are, are, are definitely very much filtered and sorted out, and what not and uh, in Russia, they usually would say that if you are calling Mr. Putin uh, on this call in program then uh, and then you are put on hold, and then the the mechanical voice would tell you that uh, uh, next Putin available would immediately attend <laughs> to you. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so that's the. the um, uh, but what Mr. Putin is doing, he is uh, he is using this as a podium to uh, for advertising of himself and advertising of his uh, of of his policies. Uh, Mr. Putin, we we should we should keep that in mind that no matter what he says and how he looks. And whether he is riding horses or bears, and there is a lot of pictures <laughs> of that. And uh, when he is, um, uh, he, he he is. Uh, it's unfortunate for Russia. He is. Uh, he is relatively young. He is 62. Uh, he has very good health. He was. Uh, Uh, And so my Cuban friends are saying that Russians are in worse position because our (laughs) leaders are octogenarians, (laughs) and so we are counting days, hopefully, Uh. while in Russia they could. Uh, He definitely would never quit because he's stuck there. He cannot quit because if he values his life – uh, then uh, he would be definitely torn apart if uh, mm. the day he would he would lose the protection of of his state.
0: So he needs to hold on to his power if 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 for no other reason than for his own preservation.
1: Uh, That's right. That's right. That's why we see people like Mugabe, like Castro brothers, like Kim family in North Korea, that they would never quit because they cannot quit. They're already hostages to their high crimes and misdemeanors. So so that's what Mr. Putin. uh, Then Mr. Putin needs to consolidate his power because now we have Russia, the most unpredictable country in the world. Winston Churchill used to say, "Russia is the only country in the world with unpredictable past." But so we cannot (laughs) predict (laughs) predict the future, Uh, and we cannot because you never can predict what's happening in one mind. If that will be even in the Soviet Union, especially the latest stages of Soviet Union, leadership was kind of collective. I'm not saying that was democratic, but still it was 10, 15 people who were deciding it. And sometimes they had a lot of infighting, competition for power. Sometimes they just behaved like spiders in a jar. But it's still, it's better to have spiders in a jar than just one spider in charge. Mm. And so, Mr. Mr. Putin, that's why it's unpredictable. It's very unstable. Uh, he, right now, his cronies in Moscow are openly beca- – because I am teaching a class on Russia, one class, on, and I'm doing the seminars in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere every week, uh, just commuting back and forth. And uh, uh, I would say that my occupational hazard is that I'm watching Russian TV all the time and reading Russian newspapers. And you wouldn't believe what you, what you see and hear there, that, that his cronies – the other Russian politicians – demand, for example, restoration of Russia – In the borders of 1850, borders of 1850 would imply give us back Alaska, give us back Poland, give us back Finland. Mm. So this is already, it's not just restoration of the, uh, I see how Mr. Putin, because nobody can say anything without his approval. I think that he staged this kind of statements. For what reason? That look at what people demand. And I am kind of much more uh, um, uh, kind of level headed person and i and deal with me rather than with, with other, uh. otherwise you will see what the alternatives is so
0: he so he stages it it's it 's a farce but he <laughs> stages these even more extreme positions in order to position himself as as more of a moderate than, in fact, he is.
1: Exactly, exactly. There's a lot of, uh, he he staged already a lot of demonstrations in Moscow and other cities, uh, not only supporting him, but demanding to go further, to occupy Hmm. Kazakhstan, to deal harshly with Baltic states, um, to to invade uh, Belarus. Uh, so this is the regime uh, because Russian economic situation is going down the drain right now. The price of oil, it's a, it's a country which was dependent only on looting its own natural resources, selling them. And this natural resources would be just would be feeding this bad government. Uh, it's an economics. It's called curse of natural resources. Hmm. Curse of natural resource means that that natural resource is not a blessing, but a curse when you have a dictatorship. Hmm. If you remember, maybe uh, was a movie uh, Blood Diamonds. About, yes. Uh, it just explains how the people who were endowed by nature with all these wonderful treasures are becoming slaves of the treasure, victims of that. Hmm. And that's exactly what's happening in Russia. The, that is oil experts, uh, gas experts, experts of gold and diamonds. Russia is very rich in natural resources. was used to perpetuate the government which should not be there in the first place. Hmm.
0: I'm glad you mentioned uh, the matter of, of of oil and gas. Uh, I, I read just this morning a story about how the European Union is, uh, uh, is planning to, or maybe has already filed, antitrust charges against uh, a company called Gazprom, which I'd, I'd never heard of, but this article calls it the world's biggest gas producer. Yes. Um, First of all, tell us more about that, and uh, if to whatever extent you followed this story, you tend to follow everything. So I'm guessing you know something about it. Um, what the what the charges are specifically? Uh, what the wrongdoing uh, that that Gazprom is is accused of committing?
1: Yes. Well, I think that this this lawsuit will not go anywhere. But from another hand, uh, what, what uh, actually happened there? Uh, Russia was providing uh, Europe with about 40% of natural gas that uh, Europe needed. And uh, so today Europe think that uh, Russia was overcharging them, uh, overcharging them, uh, playing a Monopoly g- uh, game. And uh, so when they attacked Google, with the same charges, you know that Google right now is also being sued by European Union, for, by the same by the same Department of of European Union's commissions. Uh, uh, so that's the kind of the reason. I think that for Europe it's more important because it will not go anywhere. Because what they will try to do, maybe even if they will be, if Russia would be would be considered as a, as, as 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 doing all this. Uh, They don't have enough assets to arrest. You see what I mean? There will be no much of a legal remedy from doing that. However, it's good in the sense that they present, uh, that they realize right now that they should diversify their sources. Hmm. Because Russia was playing this gas and oil card uh, extremely well Uh, with, and the Europeans being divided so much, they didn't realize that Russia is even more interested in selling gas and oil to Europe than Europe was dependent on Russia in getting this oil and gas. Mm. Because that was their source of government revenue in, in Russia. Yesterday, I was blessed to meet and uh, had an interesting discussion with the president of Estonia, Jack Hildeson. Uh, I wish he would be president of the United States. He is fully <laughs> eligible. He is from New Jersey. Huh. And uh, he was born in the United States. Okay. And uh, he talked about these issues, about issues of especially cybersecurity, about that, that the hackers, that Russia behaves right now. There is a wild animal trying to bite all the neighbors. And definitely they are extremely vulnerable. And... And so his, uh, uh, well, with the energy, uh, the oil prices, gas prices went down. Um, and rightly so, because not many people, not none of my students, know that uh, who is the biggest oil producer, number one oil producer in the world. Now it's United States of America, mm. um, the biggest gas producer. Also, we are the biggest gas producer it's just because of this horizontal fracking. We could uh, we could um, uh, produce more than anybody else, and this is the most I would say the most difficult thing for Mr. Putin to swallow. There is a Evidence by NATO, NATO intelligence that that Russians were supporting fringe groups in the United States, uh, both on the left and on the right, uh, uh, to to stop the fracking, to to keep our energy policy um, uh, kind of extremely aggressive against drilling, against uh, Keystone and things like that, because that helps Russia to uh, to keep the oil prices and their revenues high. Uh, and 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 so I would say that the more we will produce the m- the less dependent the world will be on dictators like him, like Maduro in Venezuela, uh, like unstable regimes like in Angola or Nigeria or Middle Eastern countries. So I would say that this is another twist, I think, in which. After twenty sixteen, the future president of the United States should, I think, reconsider our energy policy because it's a very essential part of our foreign policy today. Mm-hmm.
0: If, if that is true that that Putin actually you, you said was was trying to work in certain fringe groups here in America to influence our energy policy, mm-hmm. uh, how would they have how have they or would they have done that? I mean, in what kind of way would they have somehow? wielded influence over yes. our energy well, policy.
1: well, that was first mentioned by Fogg Rasmussen, who was Secretary General of NATO, uh, in his famous speech in Chatham House in London, in the United Kingdom, uh, last November. And he said he has evidence, uh, kind of ironclad evidence, that they're doing that. Then after that, there were certain publications, which it looks like uh, they have, uh, the Russians have special special centers, foundations in Paris, in, in the United States, which are providing this. If you will look, we have some websites. Amazingly now, for example, I know on the, on the right, Ron Paul Institute. If you will Google Ron Paul or just pull, put ronpaulinstitute.org, you will see that this website is almost a mirror of Kremlin Kremlin's propaganda. I'm not accusing them of getting money from Russia, but, but maybe they just don't like U.S. government so much that they think that any other government is better. <laughs> uh, but from another hand, from another hand, that definitely is the case. So look at the people on the on the extreme left. Uh, look, the, the same thing. Uh, they would have this mostly in kind of anti-fracking, kind of anti, uh, uh, disguised as environmentalist and whatnot. Uh, however, playing into Mr. Putin's uh, hands. So, so these are them. Uh, there were several articles about how this money would be channeled or how they would. Do that, and uh, hmm. so this is the, the uh, Russians are very good on that. I mean, they had a history of KGB Is uh, is all KGB is almost one hundred years old right now, and uh, and they did a lot of things.
0: They've learned a few things in all that time.
1: <laughs> Especially Mr. Putin, he likes this something called false flag uh, technology. That means that that what they would do, they would provoke something or kill people, pretending that they somebody else did that. You remember what happened with, the, with this flight, this M17 flight from Uh, from Netherlands to Malaysia, which was shot down by this uh, so-called Russian separatists. Uh, I mean, they're not Russian separatists, they're Russian uh, Russian, uh, uh, um, servicemen, Russian servicemen. I mean, book, this is a very sophisticated piece of equipment to shoot a plane which is flying there on like Mm. 30,000 feet uh, above us. Uh, So definitely, and then accuse somebody else of doing that. Mm. Uh, This time it didn't work, but in most cases it works. Uh, his uh, his hero is Stalin uh, under Stalin, they attacked Finland on the pretext that finns uh, comp- were kind of genocidal in killing Russian villagers on the border with Finland uh, when Soviet archives were open for a while and uh, it turned out that Stalin himself sent Red Army to murder his own people mm. in a such atrocious way that the whole world would never believe that your own government can even do that, uh, uh, and so it must have been important. the Finns. Yes, that's oh. right. And blamed on Finnish fascists. Hmm. Now uh, Putin is blaming Ukrainian fascists, uh, like there are such a people. Uh, if he would like to see fascists, he should look in the mirror, hmm. because that's what he is. He is nationalist and he is socialist. In 1990, Russia was mostly ruled by oligarchs, rich people. Hmm. Now, Mr. Putin reasserted his monopoly on crime. He, kind of, all these oligarchs are either subdued, sent to, to jail, or sent to exile. Uh, many of them, uh, like Mr. Khodorkovsky, he spent 10 years in, uh, with, with roaches and, and rats in the Eastern Siberian dungeon. His, mm. his health is undermined. But not he was the richest man in, in Russia. Uh, another oligarch, Berezovsky, Berizov, uh, Boris Berezovsky, he was... Uh, 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 He died in London. Uh, Presumably, he hanged himself on an ascot tie. Uh, London Metropolitan Police tried to replicate it, and they said, well, you can maybe hang yourself on a lot of things, but not on ascot ties. Hmm. Uh, You know, ascot ties, little scarf, mostly mostly worn by by older people to look young.
0: Right. (laughs) That's quite a legacy which Mr. Putin is already building. And as you mentioned earlier in the program, uh he is relatively young, so it's it's possible that the people of Russia are, are looking at uh even decades longer that he that he could presumably be in power. On the other hand, there there does appear to be unrest there. Uh I've read in the last couple days of of considerable strikes uh emerging in Russia, particularly uh from protesters complaining about unpaid wages. I mean, going unpaid for maybe three or four months at a time. Um, tell us what is behind these protests, and do you believe these to be also some kind of orchestration or are these genuine protests from uh, that represent a, an, an authentic complaint from the Russian people?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I have my own kind of cellar cell in Moscow. I have some friends there, and I sometimes when in doubt I would call them. And one of them... Um, he he was a general in the army uh, uh, medical corps. However, he believed that uh, that about one quarter of Russians do not like Mr. Putin, that and very active without this, and there were demonstrations in Moscow which were suppressed by Putin's police. But demonstration would carry slogans, and and there will be twenty, thirty thousand people, and marching on the slogans that. Uh, uh, Forgive us, Ukraine, if you can, that Mm. uh, Crimea is not ours. um, And uh, uh, or um, Nemtsov is hero, that deputy prime minister who was murdered quite Mm. recently. That's another feature of Mr. Putin's dictatorship, that his enemies, their life expectancy drops like a rock. Mm. They're just being killed by you don't know whom. And none of this high profile murders were ever um, uh, ever solved. So this is uh, kind of another thing. Um, however, from another hand, um, the, the economic strikes, uh, I don't, I, I'm not sure that, that all of them are very much anti-Putin. Most of them, are, and Putin is playing this card, that most of them are against the local leaders. For example, the local government cannot pay, cannot pay wages. And so, uh, why they cannot pay wages? Because right now, with the prices of oil and gas uh, dropped almost fifty percent, we have uh, we, and Russia, Russian budget is fifty-two percent dependent on oil and gas, and eighty percent dependent on natural resources in general. So you can see that that uh, if if it cuts by half, then then you have problems uh, and whatnot. Uh, now I think because I know people who are in economics there. Uh, now I think they decided to stop this from happening by just printing enough money. So if there is a strike back on paid wages, especially of government employees, and government employment in Russia is over 50% of general employment, so it's still, um, I would say, it's a socialist uh, regime I, nationalism, and socialist kind of comes to national socialism. And, uh, and so then you print enough money and pay them on time. However, this money already would be what? It would be fake money. Mm. It would just be uh, the inflation rate in, in Russia right now is doubled already during the last year and, and probably will double or even triple uh, this year because uh, not only we impose sanctions which are kind of funny on Mr. Putin. Why phony sanctions? Because what, how we responded to this crisis in Ukraine? That Russian officials around Mr. Putin were slapped with sanctions. That they cannot open bank accounts here. They cannot uh, they cannot buy real estate in the United States, uh, and they would not they would be denied visas to come to the United States. Amazingly enough, this is exactly the decision that Mr. Putin made when he was elected in 2000 as a president. He his one of his first orders was that none of his people around him can. Um, can open bank accounts abroad, can own property abroad, because he is a control freak. He didn't want them to defect. And you definitely, um, if you have a hefty bank account somewhere in offshore, uh, then uh, you are much better situated to do that rather than than being under scrutiny and control by by your own president. So that's what we're right now enforcing Mr. Putin's orders with the whole might of uh, FBI and IRS and, And whomever else, Uh, so that's that's this. But Mr. Putin, he, amazingly enough, to punish us, he imposed sanctions on Russian people. It's in our newspapers. We don't write about that. But Mr. Putin imposed sanctions on all imports from uh, European Union, United States, Canada, Australia. The countries which are very much against his uh, his um, uh, uh, aggression in in, in Ukraine, uh, and uh, uh, that means that they don't buy themselves. They kind of they, the approach would be: I will not eat my dinner for you. Right. And that's the uh, and that's uh, and, and a friend of mine in Moscow. He said he just bought shrimp. Uh, and it said it's it was it's made in Belarus, and just, the funniest thing is Belarus does not have any access to any sea, mm. so where this shrimp was actually so <laughs> where that did they come from? Smuggling things, <laughs> yes, uh, but uh, but it is definitely the 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 great problem. Uh, what can we do about all this? And I think that we and the Congress was absolutely explicit. What should we do? We should provide Ukrainians with what, what they want. I mean, they can buy it from us or what not because now we have we have ukrainians uh, whom we are supplying with blankets and night vision goggles only facing the biggest army in europe if not the world hmm. and uh, and nobody even even our allies in, in europe like the special british they're training ukrainian army they're training do, do things i'm not very fond of ukrainian government but it's 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 day and night from what is happening in moscow hmm. From if you compare Mr. Poroshenko with Mr. Putin, I mean, they have freedoms. It's free country. It's democratic country. It's, uh, it's uh, uh, they they are trying to do everything right. And Ukrainians suffered more. If you will look at history, European history, more in Europe uh, was suffered by Ukrainians by than by anybody else. Mm-hmm. They were they were prosecuted by tsars. They were. Um, they, they, there was a genocide against Ukrainian Jews by, by Germans during the Second World War. Before Second World War, there was a uh, grand famine orchestrated by Stalin when they starved to death, yes. 9 million Ukrainians. So it's, uh, it's a country which suffered so much just because of their geographic position. Because Ukraine, if you translate it into English, will be the, the edge.
0: Hmm.
1: And it is on the edge of, of civilization. Mm-hmm. So, so.
0: And hanging in the balance in some respects. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, on that, uh, that note, uh, we, uh, we need to draw things to a close, but I so appreciate, Professor Maltsev the rich insights that you've provided on uh, all of the different things we've discussed in this, this hour, and I look forward to, uh, to your quick return to the morning show. Uh, it's always good to have you here.
1: Oh, thank you, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr.
0: Yuri Maltseff, Professor of Economics at Carthage College, joining us today on the morning show.